All right, good morning, friendship family. So I finally figured out today what God is doing in Kershaw County over the last few months. He's working, he is shaking up the ground of our tradition, right? Uh, hopefully he doesn't break down our literal walls, but figurative walls of our religion. Uh, so glad y'all are here today. Happy Independence Day weekend. We are continuing our year of discipleship, growing in the Lord and through his word. F260 Bible reading plan, as uh, Justin mentioned, we are starting week number 27. Uh, a few ways that you can access that, like he mentioned, we have Bible reading plans over at Next Steps. You can go to friendshipwire.com slash 2022, or every Saturday morning, we post it on our social media uh, channels, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and this is what it looks like. That gives you the reading for this coming week. There are some folks who are reading ahead, um, but our, our sermons on Sundays come out of the coming week's uh, sermon. So uh, as you can see here, uh, at the end of the week, we'll be in the book of Esther. So today I'm going to be preaching out of the book of Esther. So every Saturday you can find that Bible reading for that week, that uh, plan online there. Um, just But join us wherever you're at. Uh, we are in this fifth of eight series this year going through the word called Prepare the Way. And y'all, we are halfway through. Uh, we just finished up week 26 out of 52 weeks, obviously. So we are halfway through this year, halfway through this uh, Bible reading plan. And this month of July, we are wrapping up the Old Testament. Uh, and what we're seeing in the series is uh, we're preparing the way for Jesus to come in the New Testament. So on July 31st, when we do that Family Sunday, which by the way, if you're parents and you have a baby or young kids and you want to dedicate them, you, we're going to commission, do a parent commissioning that day. So if you want to sign up for that, that would be awesome. While we have all the kids in the room, we're just going to commission parents um, to disciple their kids. Uh, and so that's going to be an incredible day. But on that day, we're going to jump into the New Testament uh, in John chapter one. So uh, that is coming up on July 31st. So we're working through this unfolding story of God in the scriptures. And, you know, we see in the beginning that God creates, he creates heaven and, heavens and the earth, man, woman, and then sin enters into the picture. And yet God's plan doesn't go off the rails. In fact, he has a redemptive plan to rescue his people. And so early on in Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, he makes this promise to Abraham. He says, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. You and your descendants are going to be a blessing to all of the nations. And ultimately, that promise is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but we see throughout the Old Testament, God's plan unfolding. And we see God working in and through strong, uh, courageous people. But we also see God working in and through weak, average, everyday people, which is good news for us. Amen. And we see this all throughout. And so here's, here's a question I have for us. Do you ever wonder about your place in the story? Like, where do you fit into all of this? You know, maybe you're going to school or working a job or you're in the middle of your career. You have a family. You have hobbies that you participate in. You have hopes and dreams. You make your plans. You, you know... You wake up and do your thing, and then you come home and go to sleep, and you wake up and rinse and repeat, right? And, and so, like, how does my life fit into God's plan and God's work in the world? So today, we see this little snippet from the story of Esther. And in my opinion, Esther was, by all accounts, a pretty weak, average, everyday woman who got swept up into this 
incredible major storyline in the scriptures and the story of God. And so I think there's a lot that we can learn from her story today. So the title is Don't Waste Your Influence. We'll be in Esther chapter four in just a couple minutes. But I just want to just take some time to set the context before we get into chapter four, because we're only going to look at a few verses, but the story, the context of the story is so important to where we're going. So here's a few things I want to talk through here. The time frame. When is this story taking place? It's 100 years after the Babylonian captivity. So as we've been talking about the people of God, they've been in rebellion against God, even though he's given them grace upon grace. He's given them warnings, and yet they've continued to rebel and go their own way and worship other gods. And so God allows judgment to come in the form of the Babylonian captivity. They're taken out of Jerusalem and into exile in Babylon for 70 years. Now, the story of Esther takes place 100 years following that. The location is Susa, the capital city of Persia. As you get into the reading this week, you'll see it mentions Susa, the citadel. And at this point, this is important to know, Persia had replaced Babylon as the ruling power in the world. It was formerly Babylon. At this point, it's Persia. And the state of God's people at this point, what you read in Ezra and Nehemiah is that some of those Jews that were in captivity got to go home. They got to go back to Jerusalem, but many of them did not. And so what we see right here is this Jewish community living in Susa, the capital of Persia. And of course, they are a minority in the land. So let's talk about the main characters in the book of Esther. One of them you might rightfully guess is Esther, all right? Uh, Esther and Mordecai, these two Jews, and they are cousins um, of one another. And some sources say that he may have been her uncle. I don't know. The scriptures make it sound like he was, they were cousins. Uh, either way, what we find out in the story is that he was, Mordecai was an adoptive father to Esther. So when her mother and father died, Mordecai took in Esther as his own. And so there's this kind of father-daughter relationship between Mordecai and Esther. Uh, there's a third character that is the king of Persia. Let me see if I can get it. It's Ahasuerus or something like that, all right? I'm not going to say it anymore. It's the king of Persia. Character number three in the story. Character number four is Haman, who is this Persian official that we'll see gets, gets raised into a position of power. And he, is, he becomes quickly known as the villain or the antagonist in the story of Esther. The author of the book of Esther is, is anonymous, uh, but there's a couple interesting side notes that I wanted to mention I thought were interesting, all right? Esther, her Hebrew name was Hadassah, which in Hebrew means myrtle. Now, I just thought that was interesting in case any of y'all ever want to use that. You're talking code language and be like, hey, I'm going to go spend the week at Hadassah. And you know what I'm saying? If you know, you know, right? Feel free to use that. You're welcome. Um, that's just an interesting thing. But her Persian name, Esther, meant star. And I think it's just interesting that, you know, Independence Day, Stars and Stripes. And this is actually the story of Esther. You may not have thought about it this way, but it's, it's actually a patriotic story because what we see is this entire nation, the nation of Israel, that is rescued. All right, so it's a, a pretty patriotic story. So hey, here's another interesting side note that uh, is pretty uh, significant. There is no mention of God in the book of Esther. So as you go through the reading, you're only going to read, I think, four chapters, um, but you won't see the name of God mentioned, which is quite interesting considering the Bible is a book about 
God, right? But it doesn't have his name at all in the pages of the book of the 10 chapters of Esther. But what you'll notice if you pay attention, because you may not have even noticed that, what you'll see is though his name isn't mentioned, you'll see the evidence, which we've been singing this morning, you'll see the evidence of his activity all throughout the book. You'll see it from start to finish. There's, there's too many coincidences and too many ironic reversals to go, well, that's just, uh, that's just fate. No, the, the hand of God is certainly at work in the book of Esther. So let me, let me give you a rundown of the first three chapters that set the context for chapter four. In chapter one, you have that king, the king of Persia, who, when you read the story, he kind of comes across as a, as, a, as a drunken fool. Right? He has parties, he is in power, but he gets drunk. And then, you know, as we see throughout the scriptures and in life in general, when you drink too much and, and alcohol has control of you, you make some pretty stupid choices, right? And when we see that in the life of the king of Persia. So chapter one, he has this huge banquet. Uh, he's drunk. He, he calls in his wife, Queen Vashti who refuses to come. She probably wants to have nothing to do with him at this moment, right? And so he gets furious. And what, what he does, the king of Persia at this point, is he removes her from her position. He kind of casts her out, right? He cancels her. Um, and then in chapter two, he does what every, you know, everyone does when they lose a spouse. He throws a beauty pageant to replace her. <laughs> Weird. Um, but, you know, he has all the power in the world. He says, okay, uh, I'm going to look for the finest young bride. And so he has this basically year-long preparation to prepare these young women. And Esther, this young, beautiful Jewish girl, um, he becomes smitten with her. And so he chooses Esther uh, to become the next queen. Now, what you need to understand in the story is that Esther is what we would call a developing character. So she doesn't show up on the scene as this uh, morally superior uh, character like we might refer to Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego as we looked at the book of Daniel. She comes in as this pretty normal, average person. She is, has beauty. She's got that going for her, but otherwise she's pretty normal. She fits right in with the pagan lifestyle, in fact. So Esther, this normal, everyday girl gets cast into this uh, incredible role as the queen. Chapter three comes along and we're introduced to the villain Haman, who is this Persian official. He gets promoted by the king and he is very self-absorbed. All right, he wants everyone to bow down to him. And of course, everyone does, except for, like we've seen a couple times in the book of Daniel, there was one Jewish man who said, uh-uh, I ain't gonna do it. I'm not going to bow down to the idols of this world. I'm not going to worship the way the world worships. I will not bow down. This is Mordecai who refuses. And so Haman is furious. And just like we saw multiple times in the book of Daniel, there is this plot. How do we get rid of this defiant Jew? And so Haman plots to kill all of the Jews. And, and I want to read, just to, again, set the context Esther chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, it says this. This is Haman plotting. It says, Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. 
A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. So the 13th, month of the month, 13th day of the month Adar, all the Jews are going to be killed and annihilated. And this was the plot of, of Haman. And so chapter 3, we see this. And then as we move into chapter 4, this brought great mourning to Mordecai and all of the Jews. Well, why would they be mourning? Well, clearly this, this would be genocide. Uh, to, to kill all of the Jewish people throughout the, the Persian Empire at this time would have killed off virtually all of the Jewish people. So what does that mean? If all of the Jewish people were killed, that story of God that he would provide through a descendant of Abraham, that story would come to an end. There would be no Christ. There would be no gospel. There would be no church. There would be no hope. There wouldn't be this. All of that would have ended had those Jewish people been exterminated like Haman's plan was. And so this was, you know, the implications of this, this decree were so much more grim and stark than those other decrees even that we saw in the book of Daniel. This isn't just about one or three Jewish, this is the entire Jewish race. And so this begins this dialogue between Mordecai and, and Esther, his cousin, and this dialogue begins through a messenger. Esther, as queen, couldn't leave the palace, so she sends a messenger to Mordecai, and, and, and Mordecai basically pleads with her. He says, go to the king, beg for favor, plead with him on behalf of your people. You're in the palace, you've got the king's ear, would you do this? There's, there's, there's this urgency. All of a sudden, this decree came down, and the, the clock starts ticking, and so there's this urgency. He says, would you do this? And so we're going to pick up in, in Esther chapter 4 verses 10 through 17. And what we see here is, I believe, this turning point for Esther. She's this normal girl who gets you know, promoted to this incredible position as queen, and she's still kind of just living her life. And here is this opportunity that comes. And so I see this turning point for Esther. Who is she going to be? What is she going to do? How is she going to fit into the plan of God? And what I see here is a series of of, of events that I think is helpful for us to follow. So four things we're going to look at this morning. Fear, provocation, conviction, and then faith-filled action. So the first thing is fear. So look with me, if you will, at verses uh, 10 through 12. Esther chapter 4, here's what it says. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, okay, remember Mordecai said, hey, would you go to the king and plead with him? Here's her response, verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. So here is is Esther, and, and her concern was for her own life. She said, listen, Mordecai, it's a capital offense for someone to go into the king's you know, inner court without being invited. I mean, there's one law. It's die. It's to be put to death. And then she goes on to say, oh, and by the way, I haven't even been invited in for the past 30 days. 
I haven't seen my husband for the last 30 days. And so for me to, to go in uninvited would be to court death. And so there's fear on the part of Esther for good reason. And remember, this is the king that, you know, on a whim just casts out uh, his queen. And so here is this fear. And when we think about the, the idea of fear in the Bible, there is one phrase or a variation of this phrase that appears over and over and over throughout the scripture in regards to fear. You know what it is? Fear not. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You know, God over and over says, I don't want you to be ruled by fear. Rather, I want you to be ruled by faith in me. And so we, you know, we hear this phrase, and I agree, in this, this idea of faith over fear, that God wants us to live lives of faith and not fear. Uh, I would say that I think over the last couple of years, that's been twisted a little bit by Christians for uh, self-serving kind of purposes um, and not necessarily righteous biblical ones. Uh, but social commentary aside, this is a principle. God says, I want you to live by faith in me. Not, don't be ruled by fear. And I have this verse um, posted on my desk. It's just in a little frame and looks just like this. And it's Proverbs 29, 25. It's just a little reminder for me. It says, the, the proverb says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Because there's a tendency for all of us in the flesh to be ruled by a fear of, of man, of people, of people we can see. Like, what are people going to think? What are people going to do? How will people think of me? And so it's easy to be re ruled by a fear of man. And, and, you know, for me as a pastor who works with people, just like any of you that work with people or lead people, there's always this tendency to uh, make decision by the fear of man rather than the fear of God and trusting what God wants. And so to me, that's just a reminder. Hey, don't, don't let fear rule you. And, and this is what's going on with Esther. You know, I think this quote says it all. William Gurnall says this, we fear man so much because we fear God so little. Isn't that true? And we all fall prey to that. But here is where Esther is. She's in this place of being fearful and understandably so. But can I, can I make this observation this morning? If you never face things that make you fearful, and what I mean is things that might, might make you uneasy or nervous or uncomfortable, if, if you never face things that make you fearful, you're probably not growing very much. You know what I'm saying? You know, getting fearful is, is normal. But getting fearful is, is always an opportunity to fear not. It's an opportunity to choose to have faith. It's an opportunity to choose to trust God. So it's okay to have fear, but it's not okay to stay there. It's not okay to be ruled by fear, but to turn that into a trust, an opportunity to trust God. And as I was working through this, it just popped in my, my head last night about my son Aiden, who is 16, going into a sophomore year of high school, going to Somersault Camp um, just a couple weeks ago. And, uh, you know, our, our students haven't gone to camp in a while, and so um, our group has changed. He was going to be the only, the only high school boy going to our camp. And so he wasn't fearful. He wasn't like, oh, Dad, I'm afraid. Um, but he was nervous. He was uneasy. He was like, I don't know if this is going to be fun. I'm the only high school guy 
Um, but you know what? Um, praise the Lord. He just kind of pushed through that and said, you know, God, would you use me? Um, would you help me? Um, and he went, though he was uneasy, though he was nervous about it. And you know what happened? He had a blast. God changed him. God did a work in him because he said, I'm not going to let fear rule me. And he stepped into a place of being uncomfortable and uneasy and nervous. And God showed up because he showed trust in God. And so here we have, here we have Esther who is in this place where she's fearful because of what could happen to her. But it didn't stay there. Here's the second thing that happened. Provocation. Provocation. This isn't a word we use every day, but I love this, this word and this idea. It means to provoke. And I want us to see the provocation that takes place in verses 13 and 14. Esther 4, it goes on to say this. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Here's his response. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Who knows? Maybe this is why you have come at this time, at this moment in history, Esther. And so I want you to remember the relationship between Mordecai and Esther, right? He knows her. He loves her. He is for her. He has this, this strong faith in God. And even though we don't see the name of God mentioned, it's clear that he has this faith because what does he say? He says, listen, God is going to deliver. If, if you keep silent, he will bring relief and he will bring deliverance from some other place. God is still going to come through. So he had this faith in God. And what he does with Esther is he, he encourages her to consider and to embrace God's plan for her. He doesn't come in here saying, Esther, stop being stupid. Esther, stop being selfish. He doesn't, he doesn't come with that angle. He, doesn't, he also likewise doesn't come saying, hey, Esther, hey, do whatever you want. Do whatever makes you feel good. Do whatever makes you happy. No, rather, what Mordecai does, he comes to Esther and he says, listen, Esther, God is going to deliver his people regardless. Like, it's not all dependent on you. The, the pressure is off. The weight is off of you. But Esther, maybe this is why God brought you into this place at this time. Maybe God is the one who brought you here for this Maybe God wants you to join him. Maybe God is inviting you to play a part in his plan of redemption. And what he does is he provokes her. He provokes her. Here's, here's kind of my own definition of provocation or to provoke. It's someone or something that stirs up or stimulates you to action. Someone or something that stirs you up or stimulates you to action. Maybe it's God speaking through his word or maybe it's God speaking through another person. Maybe it's a circumstance. It's something that helps propel you forward. It, it kind of helps give you a, a kick in the pants, right? It's this, this 
provoking that takes place. Some of you, like you think of provoking, like don't provoke your sister. You know what I'm saying? Like don't agitate, don't instigate, but that's really what this is about in a positive way. Provocation. And this is what Mordecai was for Esther. He didn't let her just kind of sit there in her fear. He didn't just kind of like wash his hands of it. He said, Esther, maybe this is why God puts you where he puts you. It seems like this wild, weird, like circumstance that you went from nothing to the queen. Maybe this is why God puts you here. And so there's this provoking that takes place. You know, I made an observation about fear. Can I make a suggestion when it comes to provocation? If you want to grow, if you want to grow spiritually, if you want to grow uh, in your relationship with Christ, add sources of provocation into your life. Add sources of provocation in your life. So let me give you a, a few four instances, all right? Number one, and we say this every single week, God's word. God speaks to us through his word. And the reason we're doing a reading plan isn't so that we can, as a church, go, hooray, we are good Christians. We read through the Bible or read through a plan this year. No, the goal of this is that we would hear from God, that we would know God, that we would hear from God. And as we're in his word, as he's speaking to us, he would provoke us to live by faith, that he would provoke us to live for him. That's the reason we're doing this. So read the Bible, get into it. There, there's no way that you can, on a consistent basis, open up your mind and your heart to his word and him not stir up or motivate you or stimulate you to do something. And so God's word, Here, here's a second provocation you could add to your life. And maybe you already have this. Find you a friend who will provoke you. Find a friend or find multiple friends who will provoke you, who won't let you just sit and pout, won't let you sit and be uh, fearful. They will stir you up. They will encourage you. They will motivate you. And, and don't just, you know, maybe you would say, I have that in my life, or I have an idea of someone who could be that way in my life. Don't just wait for them to step up to the plate. Invite them. Give them permission and maybe it sounds like, hey, if you ever see anything in my life that concerns you, if you see sin in my life, if you see an attitude in my life, if you see arrogance or pride, if you see anything, would you please say something to me? Would you love me enough to say something? I need it. I'm giving you permission to speak truth into my life and to provoke me to follow God. Because y'all listen, we all need that in our lives. Amen. We need a Mordecai, a friend who will stir us to provoke us to live for God. And that is why the, the church, y'all, is so important. That's why the weekly gathering is so important, where we can come, along one, come alongside one another and stir us up to action. Hebrews 10, 24 says it exactly this way. Let us consider how to stir up one another. That literally, it's translated in other uh, translations of the Bible, provoke one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Listen, we're not just looking for numbers and attendance. The goal of being at church is that so you can stir up your brother and your sister to love and the good works, amen? And we need this. We need people. We need one another to provoke us 
to good works. Let me give a couple other uh, provocations you can add into your life. This one you're not going to like so much. I don't like this one. (laughs) Give more than you're comfortable with giving. Try it one time. Don't give so that so that you don't even notice. Give until it hurts. I'm, I'm I double dog dare you. <laughs> give one time where you're like, ah, I don't, I don't know if I can get gas this week. We're all saying that, right? If I give this much, give until it hurts. Give until you're uncomfortable. And I promise you, you will have to trust God. And just as a disclaimer, I don't get like a bonus if y'all give more. <laughs> okay, I don't. It doesn't come into my pocket. This is for you. Give more than you're comfortable with. One time, see if God will show up and provide for you. Here's, here's one other one. Serve in an area that scares you. Serve in, a, in an area that scares you, that makes you a little bit uncomfortable. Can I tell you, growing up as a kid and as a teenager, the thing that there was one thing that scared me more than anything else. Y'all know what it was? It was to stand up and talk in front of people. Anybody have that fear? Anybody? All right. I, if you had asked me to stand up in front of a class, I probably would have wet my pants. I'm telling you, I did not enjoy that. I was fearful, very nervous. Sweaty palms and all kinds of things would happen when I would think about doing that. Guess what I do for a living? I talk to people. Thank you. I wasn't fishing, but thank you. (laughs) But man, I praise the Lord that, and that's not, you know, listen, I don't do many things well, and I don't even claim to do this well, but this is probably the best thing that I do. This is my biggest talent, but it's not even a talent. It's something that God has given me. And I praise the Lord that I didn't back down in fear that when the Holy Spirit provoked me to, to do something, I said, oh, I'm going to be terrible at this. I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I want to do this, that I obeyed God. Listen, we need provocation in our life. We need to be provoked. So maybe for you, it's serving an area that eh, maybe scares you a little bit. And if you're terrible at it, you don't have to stay doing it. I don't want you doing it if you're awful at it, right? Serve in a way that scares you. God may just surprise you with the way that he uses you. So fear, provocation. Here's the third thing is conviction. Conviction, let's read verse 15 and part of verse 16. It says, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Here's her her response back. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. So this third thing is conviction. Now, conviction is this idea of being convinced in your heart. You know, we think about it as followers of Jesus as conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said so himself, John 16, verse 8, when Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit coming, he said, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. He is the one that speaks to our hearts and convicts us. And, you know, as we look at Esther chapter 4, it doesn't say that Esther was convicted necessarily by what Mordecai said to her. But her response shows that there was, was conviction 
because her response was actually in this moment of kind of crisis. You know what her response was? It was really the same as what we saw from Daniel last week. It was pray. It was pray. Her first response, she said, hold a fast. And biblical fasts always include prayer. It's not just abstaining from food or other things. It's, it's always about crying out to the Lord. And she says, fast, you and all the people for three days. She said, I need prayer support. Uh, not air support. Air support would be awesome. Come and drop some bombs and wipe out some of our enemies. But she said, I need prayer support. I need prayer. And, and, and so, you know, when we're convicted, we see this in the life of Esther, when we're convicted, our first move should be to pray. It, it shouldn't be to like call my BFF or to post on social media. Worst idea. The first response, the first move should be to pray. Take it to the God of heaven who's actually able to do something. In fact, in general, I would say this, prayer ought to be our first response, not our last resort, which it tends to be sometimes, right? Prayer should be our first response, and this was the response that was birthed out of conviction for Esther. And, and let me just say a quick word and a plug for uh, our church. We have, over the last number of months, uh, had a prayer team developing, which I'm so thrilled about, um, and I love it. And I want to say thank you to Karen Davis for helping lead the charge. Um, but you know what? I, want to be a, I don't want to just be a church that has a prayer team. I want to be a church that prays. And one of the things that we're doing for the first time today is we're, we've opened up what we're calling the boiler room, which is this room right over here. Now, I know if you all listen, you don't hear a boiler, right? So what's the boiler room all about? Okay, it goes back to one of my favorite uh, old dead guys, theologian Charles Spurgeon, who, you know, was a pastor in England, and his church was, you know, exploding with growth, and people would come and go, where is all the power coming from? Where is, well, how is God doing all this work? And so Charles Spurgeon would literally take them to this boiler room under the church, which was a literal boiler room, so it was powering everything that was happening there physically. But his point was, he was pointing to this group of people that met in this room that were there praying during the services, and they were praying for God's work, and they were praying for the hearts of, of people. And he said, this is where the power comes from. It comes from prayer. God's people praying. And so we've renovated this whole area and we have folks in our first service and this service that in every single week that are going to be praying for you and for every one of these seats and for the people that God brings here and for everything that happens in this place, for the power of God to fall. And so, you know, if you want to check that out afterwards, as the doors open, feel free to peek in. If you want to sign up, provoke, 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 <laughs> feel free to see me over at Next Steps, all right? We'd love to have you be a part of that. So conviction, fear, provocation, conviction. Here's the fourth and final thing, faith-filled action, faith-filled action. So go back to Esther 4. Here is her statement. She says, fast Fast and pray for three days. Verse 16, then I will go to the king, Esther says, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther 
had ordered him. So what Esther was saying here was, I've been given this position. I've been given this influence for a reason. For this, this very moment, I've been given this opportunity from God. Right, His name isn't mentioned, but it's certainly inferred that I've been given this moment and I will not back down. I am not going to waste this opportunity. I've been given influence. I've been given opportunity. And I'm not going to back down from it. Though it may cost me everything. Yea, though it may cost me my life. If I perish, I perish. I may die, but I am going to go down swinging for the kingdom. And I am going to live for God. If I perish, I perish. And we see, we've been seeing this all throughout the Old Testament. There's this willingness of God's people, those who have surrendered their lives to God. There is this willingness to risk their lives for the Lord. This willingness to like not count their lives dear to themselves. And we see this all throughout. It's almost this attitude like, I'm not really living unless I'm willing to lay my life down for God. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament. And as we move into the, Old, uh, the New Testament here in a few weeks, it's evident all the way throughout the New Testament as well, particularly in the person of the Apostle Paul, who over and over said this, expressed this sentiment. Acts 20, 24 is, is one in particular where he said to the Ephesian elders as he's getting ready to depart and go away, he says this, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Here's what Paul said. He didn't say, my life has no value. I've got a death wish. No, what he was saying is this. There's nothing more valuable to me than to testify to the grace of God. And if I perish, I perish, but I'm going to live for the purposes of God in my generation. And over and over and over, you see Paul with this willingness. He says, for me to live is, is Christ and to die is gain. If I perish, I perish. And Paul was simply echoing the words of Jesus who said this in Luke chapter 9. Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And we see that in the Apostle Paul. This was the heart of Esther, this willingness to obey God, even if it means suffering, even if it means dying for the sake of the Lord. Faith-filled action. So we see these four things. We see fear and we see provocation. We see conviction. We see this all followed up with faith-filled action. And the rest of the story, I didn't even throw this out in the first service. You may know the rest of the story that God uses Esther to save his people from the sentence of sure death. All right, so she steps out in faith. God uses her. We see it all started with this process, fear, provocation, conviction, faith-filled action. I think this also describes when you really pay attention to your life and some of those little and big moments of faith 
these are the, this is the way it plays out, that there's some fear and trepidation maybe, but there's conviction that comes or provocation from someone or something, the Holy Spirit or his word or friend. There's provocation, there's conviction, and then there's faithful action and God comes and does his thing. And so faith or fear, provocation, conviction, faith-filled action. So how do we live in light of this? This is always the million-dollar question, right? How do we live in light of, of all of this? Here is really what it all boils down to for us. When God gives you influence, when God gives you opportunity, use it for his glory. When God gives you influence, when God gives you opportunity, big and small, when he gives you opportunity, use it for his glory. Don't waste the opportunities. And there's a couple things that, you, that have to be kind of true if you're going to do this. Like first, you're going to have to believe that, that God is at work, whether you see it or not. Right? Remember, there is no mention of the name of God in the book of Esther. But you see his work and his activity all over the place. It's behind the scenes God is working. And so if you're going to use opportunities and influence, you've got to believe that God is at work. Unlike Daniel 3 and Daniel 6 that we've looked at the last couple weeks, like God was very clearly present, right? He was in the fire. He was in the, the den of lions. In the book of Esther, he appears to be absent. And yet he's everywhere working. Listen, y'all. God is everywhere at work in your life. You've got to believe that he's doing his work, whether you see it or whether you don't. He puts you in locations, in situations, in relationships, on purpose, for a reason. He's setting you up, y'all. He is setting you up. He's giving you influence. He's giving you opportunities so that you can serve him. There are no such thing as coincidences in God's economy. So believe that he's at work. And here's one more thing. And I've been hearing this. I've had this in my mind, this idea. And I've heard multiple people quote this over the last couple months. I don't know if any of you have ever done Experiencing God. Anybody familiar with that Bible study? Um, Thank you, Vonda, one of you. Y'all ought to do it. Maybe we'll do it as a church at some point here. One of the most pivotal Bible studies in my faith. Um, but there's this idea in experiencing God uh, that says this. Find out where God is working and then join him. Look for, find out where God is working and then join him. As opposed to kind of our idea is like, God, would you bless this? Would you bless what I'm doing? I'm going to do this for you. Would you bless it? Rather than doing that, it's us looking. God, where are you at work? What are you doing? And when you see that God is doing something, you jump in and you join him. That may be as little as somebody making a comment like, man, I'm really struggling with this. Or do you know anybody who could help me with this? Or man, I've been really discouraged about. It may be as simple as that. God is at work and he's giving you an opportunity. So use it for his glory. So this means you've got to believe that God is at work. You've got to be looking for where he is working and then join him in what he is doing. And stop going, okay, what can I do for God? He is at work all around you every single day. Be aware, look for it, and then join him. Let me read this quote from Experiencing God. Henry Blackaby says it this way. 
God is a sovereign ruler of the universe. He is the one who is at work and he alone has the right to take the initiative to begin a work. He does not ask us to dream our dreams for him and then ask him to bless our plans. He is already at work when he comes to us. Don't miss this. His desire is to get us from where we are to where he is working. And when God reveals to you where he is working, that becomes his invitation to join him. When God reveals his work to you, that is his timing for you to begin to respond to him. And so when God gives you influence and opportunity, use it for his glory. Amen. And what we're going to do for the next few minutes is we're just going to celebrate and remember what the Lord has done for us. But I also want you to use this as kind of a time of, of response to the Lord. Maybe God has convicted you. Maybe God is provoking you to something. Um, this is an opportunity for you to respond to him.